another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's opinion of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, January 20th, and I think I said on the air yesterday that it was episode 126. That was incorrect. Yesterday was episode 125. That means that today is episode 126 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, over the, uh, I guess it's about six, seven months I've been doing this show, we've like grown into different aspects of the show. And I did that intentionally and scalable. For instance, it didn't seem to make a lot of sense for me to set up a, use, a listener forum for people to discuss things uh, when I had one listener or even two listeners or 10 listeners, or even 20 for that matter. A forum requires, you know, two or 300 members, and out of those two or 300 members, you'll get 20 to 50 that are really active. And they'll seed that forum, and they'll get it off to a good start, and a lot of them will be really great guys with a lot of information. A lot of times they'll turn into your moderator team, and when that happens, you are a very blessed forum owner. Um, that is what happened with our forum, and we are uh, rapidly going across 1,000 members in our forum, and that is a forum that's about four months old, and there are not many online forums that have ever taken off that quickly, and that kind of num- number in four months speaks to a forum that will probably have, you know, thirty or 40,000 members uh, within a year. That's the kind of exponential growth. Eventually, you hit kind of a hockey stick effect with forums and communities and things like that, and that, that's really, really exciting. So, we held off on the forum, and frankly, I held off a little longer than maybe I needed to, because until people basically said, dude, you need a forum, we want to post stuff, we want to talk, I didn't do it, I made you guys ask for it, and um, one of the other things that I eventually want to do is I want to get this this broadcast into kind of a live format where I can do live interviews, and where I can have people call in during a show and say, hey Jack, you're wrong about that, or hey Jack, did you know this, or hey Jack, what do you think about that, uh, just like you hear on talk radio, now that, that time has not yet come, but what I've reached now is a bridging step. I now have a toll-free uh, number that you can call in and leave a comment or a question. Uh, and it, it should be your intention when you do that for it to be something that would be heard on the air. Um, the number to do that, before I give it out, and there's some further instructions on the site you may want to read before you call in. Uh, let me lay a few ground rules for this. One, I have a system set that if you talk for one minute and 54 seconds, every word you say will be recorded. If you talk for two minutes and 10 seconds, two minutes of your conversation will be recorded. That means you need to limit your comments and questions to two minutes maximum, which is actually quite a bit of time uh, to give somebody to call in. If you want the best chance of being heard online, uh, go for between 45 and 90 seconds, you know, three quarters of a minute to a minute and a half. That's going to usually get your point out, be punchy, and give me something to bounce back off of and respond to. Another thing is please understand if you call this number and leave a message, even if I love what you say, it may be a week or more before you show up on a show. Uh, I may hold your comment for a show that is really about uh, the subject you called in about. I may collect up 10 people's comments and do one show with the listener feedback with with audio from the audience. Uh, There's all kinds of reasons that I may hesitate to put your comment on the air. Uh, So don't think because you don't hear it 
that we're not going to uh, to put you on the air. Uh, the next thing is, please understand, I'm in no obligation whatsoever to include your comment just because you think it's wonderful. If I don't think it fits or I think it's inappropriate, I'm not going to put it on the air. Um, if you just make a statement like, hey, Jack, your show's really good, I'm probably not going to put that on the air because that's just my ego. I want this to be thought-provoking, engaging. So let's go ahead and give you guys the number. It is 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. That's toll-free in the United States. If you are an international caller, I'm sorry. I cannot afford to set up an international number for you. I am looking into a technology that will allow you to leave comments using a computer system. Uh, or if you use a program like Skype, of course, you can call any number anywhere, including toll-free numbers. Uh, so if you're an international user, please consider using Skype uh, to call in your comments or questions. I do suggest maybe you write them down or have some notes. Uh, know what you're going to say at the end of your comment. It will make things go better. There's a radio show host here in Dallas I really like uh, named John David Wells, and his statement to callers is, have a point, be brief, be concise, and don't suck. Uh, I, I don't know that I'm comfortable telling my audience not to suck, but that is good advice about calling in any show. So there you go. There's the big announcement for today. You can call in your questions, comments, concerns, you know, to 866-65-THINK. If you go to thesurvivalpodcast.com, there's a link now for call-in uh, questions with the number printed and some advice on getting your stuff on the air. All right, moving on to the topic of today's show. What I'm going to talk about today is something that I just started fooling around with again. Um, it's kind of starting to get nice outside. Uh, I don't do a lot of this in my garage, even though I could, just because my garage is cluttered. I haven't straightened it up in a few months. Uh, I do this mostly outside my backyard, since I'm blessed with good weather here in Texas. It's it's pretty nice place to do it, and that is shooting with airsoft. And I'm going to talk about shooting with airsoft. I'm going to talk about shooting with with air pistols and air rifles that fire BBs and pellets, your more conventional air guns, and, and then moving from there into center fire uh, weapons like the 22 long rifle, uh, be it in pistol or rifle form, and even just a little bit of advice about stepping up from there into center fire world. And I'm going to do that from the aspect of you. Assume, I'm assuming that you are a uh, trained shooter, you know how to shoot, or you are a new shooter and you're going to work with somebody who's trained in how to shoot. I'm going to talk about it from that aspect and the advantages of using these tools for training and what they can do, believe it or not, to help us preserve the Second Amendment and our constitutional rights to keep and bear arms. Because believe it or not, airsoft may be one of the greatest assets that we in the firearms community have to win that battle. And I'll kind of bring that in along the way for you. And just trust me, it'll work and it'll make perfect sense when I do. Okay, so Starting off with airsoft, if you're not familiar with airsoft, these are various uh, guns that fire a 6mm plastic BB as a projectile. Um, these BBs range from, from uh, 0.12 grains, uh, very cheaply manufactured, uh, not very much quality, to high quality uh, BBs that, that move up into 0.2 grains and all the way up. I think they're as high as 0.35. I'm not sure. I shoot mostly 0.2 uh, grains, which are significantly heavier than the cheap little yellow 
0.12 grain BBs, and I also shoot biodegradable BBs, which means I'm not worried about them laying around in my backyard. Uh, a few rainstorms and they're gone, and I recommend biodegradable, high-quality BBs for all of your airsoft needs. And I think that in any quality airsoft gun, moving up to 0.2 may result in less muzzle velocity. You get more accuracy and more consistency. Um, the beauty of airsoft guns is they are built, most of them anyway, to the exact dimensions of real-world firearms. In other words, you can go out and you can buy what's called an AEG, or automatic electric gun, uh, in M4 carbine. And M4 carbine, uh, you know, of course, is the M16 variant that the uh, U.S. military carries. It will have a selector switch that moves from safe to semi to full auto. Uh, the magazine will release exactly the same way. The magazines are the exact same dimensions. They hold a lot more ammunition than, you know, a 30-round magazine. I think most of them hold about 300 rounds, so the capacity is a little bit uh, excessive. But the functioning of the weapon, the dimensions of the weapon, the size of the weapon, and if you buy a high-quality version of, uh, of the weapon that's all metal, the weight of the weapon will be almost identical to an M4 carbine. And, and that's not just true for M4 carbines. You can get M14s. Uh, you can get clones of most bolt-action rifles, from Mausers to Remington 700s uh, to the Swiss Army sniper rifle. You can buy uh, various clones of the same dimension, form, fit, and function other than the fact that they're firing these 6mm BBs. Moving into the pistol world, there's a lot of variation there. You can go from 9 to $20 cheap uh, spring-actuated guns uh, that are cock-fire, cock-fire, and uh, they're not as realistic, obviously, as the higher-end guns, but generally they are the same dimensions. I have a Colt uh, 4506 spring-action gun. It was about 20 bucks. I bought it at Academy. Uh, came with two uh, magazines, and it doesn't function exactly like my 1911, but if I lay the two of them side-by-side, side, except for the little orange tip that prevents kids from getting shot by the police, uh, or by scared homeowners, you can barely tell the difference in a picture. Their dimensions are identical, and the distance to the trigger, etc., is the same. And then there's kind of a step up from the spring-actuated pistol is the gas non-blowback, and these will either use CO2 or green gas. Uh, green gas is kind of a canned gas that you can refill. I'm not a big fan of it, because it tends to be inconsistent unless you have very steady temperatures. Uh, between the time when you're charging and when you're actually shooting. And uh, you're looking for temperatures of the 70s and 80s. So summertime, green gas works pretty great. But uh, wintertime, shooting either outside or maybe in a cold basement, you have some inconsistencies. Or they'll use CO2. And uh, they'll simply uh, function very similar, again, to the spring guns, except that they'll usually be semi-automatic. There are uh, electric pistols as well. They're usually kind of cheaper uh, guns. The electrical manu- uh, action in a pistol generally doesn't allow for a rate of fire consistent with a real semi-auto handgun. Uh, so those are kind of your options there until you step up to what's called a blowback design. Now, your blowback design pistols are modeled off of things like the 1911, the, the uh, Beretta M9, Nine, uh, Walter PPK, and just about any semi-auto handgun you can think of has a clone in gas blowback.
back in a full metal version. And that means if you're like me and you shoot a 1911 as your primary sidearm, that if you buy a good quality steel, gas-operated, below-back 1911 clone, you have a great way to develop muscle memory and to, uh, to practice when you don't have time to get to the range for about a penny every time you pull the trigger versus what it costs you to buy, you know, 230-grain hardball for your 1911. It's very inexpensive. The BBs are really dirt cheap. Your biggest expense, actually, in shooting is CO2 cartridges. So as you can see, for the experienced shooter, the airsoft world alone offers a lot of opportunities for practice, for training, and there's even leagues where people go out in the woods and shoot these things at each other, and they wear safety gear, and they have good rules of engagement. So if that sounds like something that's dangerous, you know, guys get hurt, but guys get hurt playing football. Guys get hurt playing rugby, and I think you get a lot more injuries football and rugby than you do from airsoft leagues. That's not my world. I'm not really into it. A lot of those guys are real pseudo-military types, and... Uh, I don't know. Some ex-military guys are really uh, pseudo-military types, and a lot of uh, prior service military people, such as myself, uh, we don't really dig the pseudo-military world. You're either military or you're not, and we just and we don't have nothing against anybody that's in that world. We just don't want to go out and pretend to be what we used to be. It would be kind of like uh, former high school football stars that weren't good enough to go to college, going out and setting up an adult league, and, and you know pretending that they're, you know, in the NFL. And some people like that, and some people don't. I, I just happen to be one that doesn't. So if that's your thing, man, go at it. And I think there's a real potential for training there uh, when used in an organized manner with uh, clearing houses or urban warfare or jungle warfare. Uh, there's limitations because of the range of these weapons. And, uh, you know, 50 meters is a heck of a long shot for airsoft. And uh, if somebody's going to write in and tell me that they saw a guy do it at 300 feet, and, and that's fine, and those are the exceptions. But, you know, I'm talking about main battlefield where these guys are out there with their electric weapons. Um, 50 meters is a long, long way. So... Moving out of that and, and taking the approach that I said we would take of how does this help you train a new shooter is that it's probably the best way that I know of to train new shooters today. And it's frankly something that wasn't even available 20 years ago uh, when I was really beginning to come up into the shooting sports myself. It wasn't there. And I've trained a lot of people to shoot by taking them to a gun range as the first time they shoot. And what I've determined after training people with airsoft is that it's much more preferable to put a realistic airsoft clone in their hands first, especially when you're talking about handguns. I, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I've trained new shooters where you put the gun in their hand, you get them to do everything right, they keep it downrange, you're, you're ultra alert because you don't know what this person's going to do because you've never fired with them before. They fire the weapon a few times, maybe even empty it, but then they have this dazed look and they just kind of start to rotate back and the, the muzzle of that weapon is just rotating rotating, and if you're alert, your hand is on that muscle and you're bringing it down. And usually after doing that once or twice, um, they get they get it. But it's, a, it's an intimidating aspect of training a new shooter who's not used to the regiment of this is safety procedure. All right? I, I trained one young man. The first weapon we had him firing was a shotgun. 
And he was about 14 years old, I guess, and he was a big kid. He had no problem shooting an 870 uh, 12-gauge with uh, standard skeet loads. But he would fire it, and he would get this, you know, he was just overwhelmed by it. He was into it, and he would get this look on his face, and wow. And he would just start to turn, and you just see the muzzle of that, that, that shotgun coming around. And with a shotgun, at least the muzzle's long, you can grab it. Hey, listen, safety, downrange, blah, 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 right? Now, when you take some Somebody have to shoot an airsoft gun, the, the, especially the CO2 blowback, which if you're going to teach somebody to shoot a pistol, probably your best bet is a good, high-quality, all-metal gas blowback CO2 pistol. You're talking 100 to 200 bucks for the, the kind of the entry-level upper-end stuff, and, and worth the investment, trust me. Now, you put that into their hand, and you don't want to get shot. It's supposed to be at close range with one of these things. They can break skin. They can go into flesh. They do hurt, but as long as you're wearing eye protection, and you're pretty safe, and no one's going to die. But yet there's enough of a fear factor to make safety important. All right. So now you're less nervous, you're less apprehensive, you're less worried about what they're going to do. Right? You still have to be vigilant, you have to be alert, you have to be a good coach. But since you're, you're, your nerves aren't ratcheted up, and this guy might turn around and shoot me, or shoot himself, or shoot the guy next to us on the range, or even not shoot anybody but do something stupid and get us thrown out of the range by the range officer, and all that apprehension is gone, you're a lot more calm, you're a better instructor to a new shooter who needs you to be a good, calm, relaxed instructor. You now have the opportunity to teach every aspect of the firearm. How to change a magazine, how to use the safety. If it's something like a single action 1911, full cock, half cock, down hammer. Condition 1, condition 2, condition 3. Holstering and unholstering. Opening the slide. Setting the weapon down in a cleared condition like you would at the range when people go downrange. Every aspect of these airsoft weapons is exactly the same as their counterparts, as long as we're not talking about the $9 plastic POSs, right? I'm going to talk about them in a second, too, because they have a value. Now, another aspect of this is usually when you take a new shooter to the range, unless you're blessed with a place where you've got a rural area or you can just go out in your back 40 and shoot. Some people have that a lot of, and that, you know, that number of people that have that is going down every year. Um, you know, so there's not that much of that. Or, like, when I lived in Pennsylvania, there was a uh, a range on every piece of state game lands, and there were state game lands everywhere. And some of the bigger pieces of state game lands had two ranges. And they were free, and they were open to the public, and you just went there, and everybody kind of sorted themselves out, agreed about when it was time to go down range. And when you went there, you could set up things like reactive targets, like gongs and silhouettes. Uh, you could set up skeet on the, on the berms and shoot uh, skeet that's usually used for shotgun as a reactive target. And what I found with new shooters is when you let them shoot a reactive target rather than a piece of paper, especially when they're new and starting out, it's more exciting to them. They don't care if they can shoot a one-inch group. All right, When you have them shoot out of paper, they have a bullets everywhere, 12-inch diameter. One bullseye, man, that's what they remember. And that tells you that, they, that all they're thinking about is, can I hit what I'm aiming at? You put a paper in front of them and they're thinking about hitting the bullseye. If you put a tin can up or a piece of plywood or uh, something like that, a safe reactive target, they're not worried about hitting the bullseye. They're worried about hitting the target, knocking it over, making a reaction. And let's face it, anybody that shot pop bottles when they were a kid with a 22 nose, when you see something break, fall down, jump, it's a lot more fun. All right, it's just cool. 
So that's something that when you move into the airsoft realm, you take somebody outside, set up a box, throw some soda cans up on top of it, and, uh, you know, you can adjust the distance to the shooter. So maybe the weapon that you have is capable of making that shot easily at 25 feet, but you start the person out at 15 feet. They have success, they gain confidence. At the same time, you're training them in operation and safety. And and to me, this is just the most outstanding tool ever created for introducing a new shooter. And, And then there's one more thing. When you put a firearm into a person's hands that's never shot before, make no mistake about it. With the exception of a very few, most new shooters are intimidated by the weapon. Because they're intimidated by the weapon, even at 22, they're more likely to flinch. They're more likely to jerk the trigger. They're more likely to do all the things, especially handguns. Right-handed shooters pull low left. Left-handed shooters pull low right. And that all has to do with hand position and arm position. And when you're squeezing, you're letting the supporting hand make motions that it's not supposed to make. All right? And it's so much harder to teach that when the person's afraid of the freaking gun. Put them with an airsoft, and they might even, some, especially younger people and females, may be intimidated the very first time they pull that trigger because they don't know what it's going to do. They've seen you shoot it. They've heard it. It cracks. It's almost as loud as a twenty-two, for God's sakes. You know, the CO2 pistols are like whack, whack, whack. They see that slide coming back. Is it going to hurt their hand? Whatever, right? You, they shoot it once and they go, oh, this is no big deal. Now they're not afraid of it. Now they're willing to take your coaching. Now, before I kind of come out of airsoft to talk about pellet rifles and BB guns and things like that for a second, and kind of a different level and a different use, let me say something about the cheap guns. The spring action pistols, especially the 4506. And uh, the, the, there's a Beretta clone spring pistol available at Academy and most of the sporting goods stores. It's also about a $20 pistol. And these work, you load up the magazine. Most of them have like a 15-round mag with your BBs. Slam the magazine home. You have to cock. You have to work the slide every time. That cocks the spring. Singular shooting. Bang. Click. Bang. Click. Bang. Click. What I've learned about these weapons, especially the Smiths and the Berettas, they're, they're very accurate used within their ranges. And I'm talking, you know, hitting a quarter at 50 feet if you use them within their ranges and you learn how your individual weapon shoots. Great sight picture. Okay. Slow rate of fire, which makes a kid or a new shooter concentrate more about every shot. The downside is they're all plastic and they're very, very lightweight compared to a full-size weapon. That's a bad thing from a training aspect for muscle memory and things like that and realism, and they don't have all the functionality of the upper-end all-metal gas blowbacks. But... What they do have is an ability to magnify error. And I didn't realize this until one day I was at Academy and on a lark. I thought, yeah, I'm going to buy one of these things and see what they'll do. So I bought this 4506 Smith & Wesson. That was the first one. I think I probably put a couple, you know, tens of thousands of rounds through it, playing with it in my uh, my rec room up in Pennsylvania in the cold winters. And uh, eventually it crapped out on me, and I was so impressed with it, I went out and bought another one. And every time I would shoot that thing consistently over time and train myself to overcome its lightness, and I'll explain 
explain that in just a second. I'd go to the range and I would shoot better than I've ever shot before. And I can tell you that when I take my 45 to the range now, I am a better shot today with my 45 than when the Army taught me how to shoot an M9. And I've always been a fair pistol shot. I'm now a much more consistent pistol shot, and I owe it, I think, more to that cheap gun than anything else. Here's why. You never see somebody shooting bench rest rifle competitions, supreme accuracy, 300 meters, right? These special Wildcat cartridges, 6mm PPC and stuff like that. You never see somebody saying, hey, I have the lightest rifle out here. Those guys are shooting rifles that are bricks. They're 16 pounds or more. Why? It's not really for recoil when you're shooting a 6mm PPC. Right, this is not a lot of recoil there to begin with. It's about the fact that a heavier weapon is more accurate. Because when you have weight, it takes a certain amount of effort to affect it. In other words, if I have a rock that's small and I flick it, it'll roll across the street. If I have a rock that's big and I flick it, nothing happens to it. The same thing's true with guns. And all the little errors that you make as a shooter, the lighter the gun, the more effect they have on it. So your shakes, your pulls, your drops, your your lowering of your wrist, all the different mistakes that shooters make when you shoot a super light weapon are magnified. That's why a lot of these really light mountain rifles, right, they're great guns, but they're never as accurate as a conventional bolt because of that weight limitation. It's not the weapon's limitation, it's the shooter's limitation with the lighter weapon. These spring pistols also, when you fire them, you visibly see these little white pellet flying through the air. When you pull down left, you actually see the pellet in the air make a curve. Alright? And it's not really curving. It's actually been curving from the time that it left the barrel. This is not something like uh, that movie Wanted where people were making bullets curve. That's not what's happening. That curve, that bullet's actually going straight. But the longer it travels, the more accentuated the curve appears to the eye. And you know exactly what you did wrong. So when you take a new shooter who's constantly shooting low left and he's insisting, it's not me, it's the gun, and you pick the gun up and boom, 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 you're tapping 9 and 10 ring, he still won't he'll say, well, it's sighted different for me and you. There could be some truth to that, but odds are that weapon is sighted in perfectly. But when you put these lightweight weapons in these people's hands, they can see for themselves these little errors because the errors are magnified and visible. So when if you were like going to train somebody to eventually shoot a, a 45 1911, getting one of these 4506 Smith and Wesson guns for 20 bucks, a nice 1911 clone for around 100 bucks, using it for your own personal training, and then slowly stepping somebody maybe a 22 in the middle as an interim weapon, first firearm. Arm, maybe even stepping them into a 9mm before they deal with the recoil of a 45. But I promise you, by the time they get to that 45, you're going to have a safe, well-educated, well-informed shooter who knows the function of the weapon, who understands when something doesn't happen right on the range, it's his fault, and will be able to identify what he's doing wrong. This is a shortcut to a good shooter. That's what I see Airsoft does. Now, let's look at kind of the middle ground between center fire and rim fire and uh, Airsoft. Real briefly, let's talk about pellets and BBs. Everything that I just said about Airsoft, there's probably uh, a lot to be said the same for uh, 
repellent pistols in, uh, in particular. Uh, Crossman, for instance, makes a 357 revolver clone uh, that shoots, I think, 12 pellets in a 177. It's a beautiful pistol for training somebody to use a revolver. It functions almost identically, uses CO2. Uh, the thing with air rifles that are firing pellets, steel BBs, lead, these things are much more lethal. Now, generally, they're not lethal to humans, unless you're talking big bore air gun or PBA ammo, which I'm not going to get in today, uh, and, and specific shot placement. They're not usually something that is going to hurt a person. But there may be a lot of places where it's legal to fire airsoft and not legal to fire uh, it's more conventional air gun. Uh, so that's one consideration. Uh, another consideration there is that the other side of that is they can be used for small game hunting. So they're more, for our community and the survival community, if you have a good break barrel uh, pellet rifle, uh, and I have a Beeman that's uh, it got two different barrels. It'll shoot 177 and 22. And, uh, I mean, it is dynamite on squirrels. I've taken out a few squirrels with it, and when you get a squirrel in the head, or even through the shoulders with that 22 at, you know, 20 to 30 meters, they don't even move. I mean, I've seen squirrels take shoulder shots from 22 long rifles and run, and uh, I guess it's the, uh, the, the, the fact that these pellets, when you hit a shoulder on a squirrel, they kind of dump all the energy inside the squirrel. They might flip around a little bit and run a tail up and down, but uh, they're out and they're done, and it's a great tool for eliminating backyard pests. For training your shooters, it's kind of a next step, especially if you're taking a child and you really want them to get things and, and get them down pat and be able to, you know, you want to say, what are our three rules, of, three primary rules of safety at the range, or whatever it is that you have, whatever it is that you're instilling in your shooter, and you want them to be able to rattle that stuff off, you want them to take it seriously, you want them to prove to you they're ready for a next step, it, it might be a really good, you know, kind of incentive for that kid. Hey, you know what, you want to shoot the pellet pistol, you know, then you got to get all this right and we'll move there. Then you'll prove yourself there. Then Dad's going to take you to the range. All right, so it's useful that way. My point about them, though, is you can use them for training the same way. And, and I want you to think about this. There are people that shoot in the Olympics with these pellet rifles. that They measure the accuracy that these guys shoot with, not by the tightness of the group, but these guys all shoot a single hole. And whoever's hole is the smallest is the winner. Right, some of them shoot a hole that's not much bigger than a single single pellet. You really think if you hand that guy a thirty oh six and tell him to shoot a deer, if he wants that deer dead, that deer has a chance at 100 yards? I don't. I, I think that now that guy might not be the greatest center fire shooter in the world, but he damn sure has enough muscle memory and enough understandings of firearms to make a shot like that. So all of these weapons are great for training. As you move people into the twenty two uh, rimfire realm, and you, you know, kind of my go-to gun, I guess because I own one for training people with a twenty-two pistol, is a Ruger Mark II. I'm a long barrel, heavy barrel target model. It makes shooting well. It's a very, very accurate, easy to operate weapon. And I like starting people with a longer barrel because, again, if they do kind of brain fart on you out at the range, it's easier for you to see what they're doing and maybe grab an arm and turn them back around and say, hey, you're forgetting your safety rules, that type of thing. Uh, 
So you take somebody to the range now with this 22. Another great little 22 for training is the Sig Mosquito. Uh, that's a gun you might really want to look at. It's very affordable, and it's built more like your conventional combat pistol than something like a Ruger uh, Mark II or a Browning Buck Mark, uh, which are two of kind of my favorites. Uh, and there's a there's a plethora of 22 semi-auto pistols out there and 22 revolvers. They're great interim steps. Very low recoil, but yet now you're holding a lethal weapon. It's a new level of respect between the shooter and the coach. It's a new level of trust to allow the shooter to put into their hands. Yet, it doesn't have a huge muzzle blast or a lot of recoil, so they're a lot more likely to stick with the fundamentals that you've taught them with a blowback airsoft pistol than if you just go ahead and here's my 1911 full power 230 grain loads. And they're dealing with all this recoil before they're ready for it. And then you kind of step them for maybe a 9mm before you go into something like a 45, if you're even going to go there. Because I love 45s doesn't mean that you need to love 45s. Um, but pretty much I carry a 45 auto because they don't make a 46 auto. Uh, I like my uh, I like the holes to be big, uh, and, and I like the assurance that comes with a weapon that's been around for over 100 years uh, that I think John Browning gave an amazing gift to the shooting world when he created that gun. So that's kind of my view of this thing and, and how it can add more to your life as a shooter and as a survivalist. But how in the heck can I make a case for this defending our Second Amendment? Well, it's a lot like gardening and how gardening protects our food supply. See, the more people that garden, the more diversity we preserve in the agricultural system, the less dependence we have on the mass-produced food system. And if you add buying locally to that, you really start to make a significant impact. And people have asked this question about this whenever I talk about gardening and buying locally and said, does it really matter? Yes, it does. The biggest lie that the powers that be will ever tell you is that your garden doesn't make a difference. They tell you that because they're afraid of it. If your garden really didn't make a difference, they wouldn't say anything or put out any messaging at all they would ignore you. People only resist what they fear. Please remember that in all walks of life. Well, very, and what makes gardening so effective is when your neighbor sees you gardening and you have your kid go over and give a bag of tomatoes or something like that, it starts to rekindle memories that they have of a relative or maybe when they were kids they were gardening. It starts to spread. It's fertile. As Jules DeVay says, resistance is fertile. All right. So that works in gardening. Well, the reality is it works even better with firearms ownership. Because, frankly, owning and taking a gun to the range once in a while and possessing a firearm is a lot less work. And overall, at least after the initial investment, costs less recurring money in many instances than being a gardener. Gardening pays itself back. We all know that. But there's that, you know, you got to buy seeds, you got to buy soil, you got to buy tools, all these things. And it just seems like you're all you know, buying some new fertilizer. You don't have enough compost you're making, so you have to buy some. There's all this this stuff where, you know, a brick of 22 shells for 25 bucks goes a long way. 500 rounds for 25 bucks. Nice little 22 pistol, 150, $200, right? And you go to the range and it's maybe 8 bucks, 9 bucks to shoot. And you do it four or five times a year. You're a gun owner. And then your psychology changes when that happens. Even if you're not, like, you know, we have a forum thread where people are posting pictures of their firearms. And, you know, some of us are real gun nuts, and I'm a gun nut. I, I admit it. And uh, even if they don't go to that level, just owning 
one or two firearms makes them now part of the coalition of firearms owners. Now when somebody starts talking about taking away a gun, it's not an etherical concept to this individual. It's, they want my personal property. Hey, I know how to use this thing. I'm properly trained. I don't have any of their schoolings or certifications. They have decided that they need to enforce on us as a government. I was taught. I was trained. I know how to use this. I know when to use it, when not to. Maybe they go ahead and take the step of becoming a concealed carry holder if they live in a state that honors freedom in the Second Amendment. Right? And they start to realize that this talk means something to them. The more people like that, the harder it is to infringe on the rights of all gun owners. Every time a new gun owner is born, the Second Amendment is reinforced. And the more things you can do to get your fellow Americans into, involved in, and enthusiastic about the shooting sports, the more you do to preserve the constitutional freedom that this nation has enjoyed for over 200 years. Written by men that understood what liberty was all about and what liberty was worth. And that your right to self-protection and your right to oppose your government should never be infringed. In the words of Thomas Jefferson, I believe said this, when a nation, or when a, when, a, when, a, when a people fears its government, there is tyranny. When a government fears its people, there is liberty. And every new gun owner strikes fear into the heart of the government, not because of a fear of revolution, because of fear of independence. What government wants from people is dependence. That's why they have all these programs, all these safety nets, they call them. All this crap is to make you dependent. Just like a crack addict is dependent on his dealer, the government of this country wants its people dependent upon it. And that is not a direct attack on our government. That is what happens to all government when it becomes big enough and powerful enough. It's a logical consequence of government. And over sized, overbloated government. We want to fix everything. The goal is noble. The result is abysmal. By fixing everything, we have to create dependence. Because if you fix all my problems, I become dependent upon you. The two are inseparable. Go out and create new gun owners, and you take away from that system. You reduce its insidious nature, and you preserve our Second Amendment. And things like airsoft and air rifles, when used properly to take someone who has never touched a firearm before, that may be apprehensive, that may be feared, that may be blinded by ignorance because they just don't know and were never exposed to it, and using that to teach them how to be a safe, effective, proud owner of a firearm can help preserve our liberty and help give us all a better life in this country. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler It really doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent